As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're answering your listener questions, including favorite officiating moments, league superlatives, Harry Maguire being bad and also good at the same time, MLS roster rules, the life of Welsh clubs, and much, much more. To help me answer those and many other topics are two fine fellows. Up first, a man who is still saving up to submit his takeover bid for Manchester United. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. How's it going? I'm really working on it. It's taken some time, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to scrounge up the, the pennies in the couch cushions, yep. whatever mm-hmm. money I've got in my bank account. I mean, it, it's all coming together. Uh, Elon tossing his hat into the race really makes this more difficult for me. Publicity-wise, It's it's been a challenge over the last day or so. But, you know, I, I feel like we're making real progress, Taylor. I, I appreciate that you're making progress towards the, I'm assuming, billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, uh, hopefully small, you've got many, many progress. couches to check Yeah, <laughs> many couches, exactly. Uh, so that's Joe Lowry with us today as well as a man who is as likely to end up owning Manchester United as the aforementioned Elon Musk. It's Graham Ruffin. Hi, Graham. <laughs> Hi, Taylor. Yes, I was skeptical of Elon's tweet. As Elon, am I on yeah. first name yep. terms with him? Yeah, Elon you are. Yep. We all are. Yep. Um, yeah, I feel like being a, a resident of the internet, we are all on first name terms with Elon Musk now. <laughs> But uh, yes, I'm, I'm skeptical of his bid to buy Manchester United, just as I was skeptical of his bid to buy Twitter, which I think at this current moment is still not in his possession. Nope, it is not. Yeah, if only there were a precedent for him publicly announcing things that were going to happen and then those things spectacularly not happening. Uh, yeah, I do not see him taking over Manchester United. I would not love if he did. I do love that you called him Elon on the show. I should note that before we started recording, Graham did acknowledge they are best friends and did call him Musky Boy. I feel like that's a weird nickname, Graham. It was the Musk Master. Taylor. The Musk Master, excuse yeah. me. Ah, yes. damn. You've outed me. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, basically I'm just in it to go in the spaceships. That's all I'm in that friendship for. <laughs> Uh, nothing like forcing someone into a yes and this early in the morning. Uh, Graham, thank you for that. It did make me wonder, though, uh, if, Graham, you had a billionaire linked with a takeover of a club you support, are there any billionaires that you would feel sort of comfortable with being linked? Or is there a company that you'd be like, all right, like, they seem like they're mostly well run. Why not? Like, I feel like Apple under Steve Jobs, maybe. Uh, but now... Maybe less so these days, uh, Apple as a whole. So, Graham, for you, any billionaires that you would trust in a takeover? Uh, the, the, the sincere answer to that is no. I, yep. I, I struggle to think of a billionaire. Yep. I, I truly want to own my club because as a general rule, I am suspicious of billionaires yep. and maybe nobody should be that rich. But if I have to pick one, um, I'm probably looking to someone who's earned their billions through sports and, and like endorsement deals. So I'll go with Roger Federer. He became Ooh. a billionaire last year. I think he'd be quite classy as as an owner, and if his his Nike apparel over over the years is anything to go by, I think the kits would be pretty classy as well. Players players coming out onto the pitch in blazers rather than uh, tracksuit jackets. Sign me up for that. If you went the PSG route where they had uh, like the Jordan logo instead of the Nike logo, what would it be for Feder? Would it just be a racket? Would it be the headband? What would you go for on the Manchester United badge? Well, he to show that he actually has 
he actually has his own logo, so yeah, it's like an R, an R, and an F, and people wear. I actually find it quite quite annoying. So I, I am a tennis fan, as listeners will probably know at this point. And you go to a match that doesn't even involve Roger Federer, and there'll be fans wearing the RF caps. It's kind of a little bit go, like going to an international champions cup game in the US, and people wearing shirts that has nothing to do with the teams actually playing on the pitch. It's a little bit like that in the tennis world. So I think the RF logo would find its way some way on some way onto the onto the Manchester United kit. I think it probably would. I think TeamViewer is not continuing their shirt sponsorship. So maybe it all uh, works really well, Graham. I like that one. Joe, what about you? Any billionaires aside from uh, yourself that you'd be okay with taking over your club? Uh, well, once I find the rest of the pennies, I yep. will, I'll make it over to that, that figure mark. Oprah. I'm going to have Oprah own my, my soccer <laughs> yeah. club. Um, there's so many <laughs> different ways to take the... I looked it up just before we started. I, I, and, and yes, apparently she is a billionaire. Wow. There's so many different ways to take the you get a fill in the blank, you get a fill in the blank. I'm just going to have this be a Mad Lib and, and the people at home can figure this out. I couldn't decide which joke to go for. So I just kind of ended up with no joke. But oh, well, that's that's where we're at right now. Has, has she made her billion or billions through television? I don't alone? know. <laughs> I have no idea. I always think that's amazing about American TV, just because obviously oh. because your audiences are so much bigger. But I remember the this is going off on a tangent, but I remember um, Megan Kelly left uh, whatever network she was at, and she got a payoff of about seventy million dollars. And yep. comparing that to the to the UK to UK TV, where you know you would get about like two hundred pounds and and a, and a gift card for uh, Greg's, I think would probably be your payoff <laughs> from a TV network over here. Different world, different world. Different if world. Oprah's a billionaire from TV. Yeah, uh, generally speaking, Graham, American TV equal dumb. There you go. Um, okay. I, 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 Whoa, I like Taylor, it. sorry. Have you seen Storage Wars? Come on now. Don't let's not <laughs> let's not take this too far. I have, and I and I sometimes wonder. I'm a big fan of saying like "yep" when I'm really agreeing <laughs> with something, and I don't know if I took that from Storage Wars. It makes me uncomfortable. That if is I concerning. Did. Yeah, I know, concerning. right? Especially from Dave Hester. See, this is what bothers me. I don't remember math. I don't remember high school science. I do remember the names of the characters on Storage Wars, and that is a problem. <laughs> that is not how brains should work. Again, Graham, American TV, dumb. Uh, it's billionaires it's storage, also kind of dumb. Is Storage Wars the, the the TV show that the the term LeBron James of soccer came from? Was no, that, that, close. That show? That, I think that's Pawn Stars, right? Where somebody trying <laughs> right, to pawn yes. off this picture of Pulisic. But yeah. I, I, Graham, you're basically in the same ballpark. Yeah, yeah, they're they're okay. essentially the same show. Okay. It's fruit from the same tree. Yeah, I, I, was, I would say that's that's a great one. I was also I'd find myself reading articles about like the most generous billionaires, the billionaires who live like down home people, and then I realized the problem there is like Carlos Slim, who still like lives in the same house he's always lived in, or there's an Indian billionaire who still drives like the same beat up Toyota. Those dudes aren't spending money on a football club to then wash away money. Like that's not going to work either. So you have right. to have like a likable, ruthless businessman, I'm not sure that exists. So unless, like, Scrooge McDuck comes along, or maybe, like, M- Montgomery Burns, and even there, he's not that likable. I think, maybe maybe I'm going to go with Oprah. Maybe Oprah and Roger Federer can co-own Manchester United. I feel like you all have done a better job of answering that than I, so let's keep it going with you all, primarily answering some questions. Uh, Joe, we'll come to you for this one, from Doug Sohalt. I was so sad to hear that referee Mike Dean had retired from the field. I will miss his dummies, no-look yellow cards, and general sassiness. In his honor, what are some of your favorite sassy ref moments, either experienced on field or observed? Okay, so let's start with experienced on field and move through that very quickly. Mm -hmm. I don't really have any favorite ref moments from my time playing soccer or other sports. I... I respect referees. I never had the greatest time getting along with referees, nor did I typically feel like the referees that I was experiencing. And this is, of course, just the referees that I was playing with. Uh, I don't feel like they did a very good job because they kept calling me for fouls, and I I just don't feel like that was appropriate or or justified. (laughs) So we're going to skip right through that section. As far as best sassy ref moments, I kind of took sassy pretty broadly because when I'm watching games, I don't really think at all about the refereeing or the officiating. And I hope when I pray that we don't have to talk about VAR or or really anything that the referees do in any particular game. But I do have a few favorite referee moments from relatively recent years. So the first one is one we actually talked about pretty pretty recently, maybe a few weeks ago. It was in the game that Bayern Munich played against RB Leipzig, uh, and that's when Danny Olmo puts the ball on the sidelines to trick Bayern, and it's, it's close to the end of the game, back in the corner, and the AR steps forward to check if the ball is still on the line, and he's like peering over it, almost like that SpongeBob meme, where SpongeBob is like, knows, this might not be the right audience for this. Anyway, he's, he's looking close to the ball, and he's seeing it, and it's on the line, and he's just waiting. Lucas Hernandez comes over for Bayern Munich to pick up the ball, 
because there's been some sort of stoppage of play, but play isn't really stopped. And the referee's just waiting and waiting. And as soon as Hernandez touches the ball, he rips his flag up and points it to the sky. And uh, Leipzig get a free kick. And it's it's just great content. And that's exactly what, we, what you're supposed to do as far as referees are concerned. The ball is still in play unless there's some sort of change from the center referee or some other reason to actually stop play. They're waiting for the ball to go out of bounds so that they can address the stoppage. And and just the way that it was handled, I thought, was was very funny. But we talked about that before. A couple others, I'll go quicker here. The Bundesliga back in 2014, so we're staying in Germany. The ball is coming out of bounds. Bayern are ready to take a corner. And the ball's rolling towards the linesman. And usually in those situations, I see the linesman just step aside, right, and let the ball roll. They, I don't generally see... The, the officials interfere with the game or help players collect the ball. It's not their job. It's the, the, the ball kids' jobs to do that. But in this case, the, the ball is rolling towards the linesman. He juggles it up in the air. I think takes one or two touches and, and just juggles it and passes it to Tiago in the air. And Tiago just gives him this, this sort of impressed smirk or this nod that sort of says, oh, I see you. And it's just, it's funny, right? It's, it's your moment to shine if you're the referee. I'm totally here for it. I don't think that's probably what you're supposed to do, but I thought it was extremely entertaining. And he, he took his shot and he made his shot. Tiago was impressed. And then finally, Michael Oliver shaking hands with Pep in 2019. So this is a, a Man City versus Liverpool game. Maybe you guys will remember this. Maybe you won't. I, I didn't remember it at first, but then it did come back to me. So there have been a couple of different handball questions in that game, and they didn't end up going City's way, and City lost that match to Liverpool again back in 2019. And Pep, during the game, after one of those moments, had just been like livid on the sideline. He's yelling at the fourth official. He's just generally not having a good time. After the game, Pep goes over to shake Michael Oliver's hand, and he does it so aggressively. It, it's not quite Tuchel Conte handshake gate, but it is like, oh, you know, you did a great job today through gritted teeth and, like, shaking his hand way too high and way too low. (laughs) And Oliver just plays it off like it's a totally normal handshake and he doesn't notice how sarcastically Pep is handshaking him. And then after the match, Pep's like, no, that was a a totally normal handshake. I I just told him he did a great job today. Like, I didn't have any issues with his calls or something along those lines. So I I think the sarcastic handshake and just the sass to not react, that's pretty high up on my referee moments list. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I am also a big fan of Mike Dean himself, uh, a man who often would get sort of uh, viral tweets about him, like rooting for a team because of the way he would celebrate. But almost always those were him celebrating when he had given an advantage and then a goal had been scored from the advantage. So he was celebrating himself getting the call right. And I love those moments. I love when an official, I've talked about this moment, when the penalty taker hits it off the bar, the goalkeeper runs off to celebrate in the shootout, and then the ball comes right back down and bounces into the goal because of the spin. And any referee who's standing there and is very clearly paying attention to it and wants to be able to point at it and dramatically gesture, I appreciate those moments where they are so focused on the little rules of the game, those little moments that they then can't control their emotions when they get it right. So Mike Dean was great for that. I've got a couple other names that I'd like to mention, but Graham, I'll throw it to you for a couple more yourself. One of the things that I love about Mike Dean is that he's a giant Tranmere Rovers fan. And I remember watching a, a game, uh, so maybe it was one. last year, maybe it was far longer ago. And Tranmere Rovers were in this game, were, were playing this match and they, and they must have scored an important goal or something. And I, I was watching this game live on Sky and it shows the crowd and then there's this there's this guy in the middle and he is giving it loudy, like, as we'd say in Scotland. like he is, He's chanting at the top of his voice and it slowly dawns on me that's Mike Dean. And I think it dawned on the internet at the same time as well. So one of the things I love about Mike Dean is that he is a giant Tranmere Rovers fan and he got caught that that, that one time. But I can't talk about Mike Dean without also mentioning Matu Lajos, who is basically the Spanish Mike Dean. And one of my favourite Matthew Lajos moments was in the 2022 Champions League final between Chelsea and, and Manchester City. And Rudiger's committed a foul and, and he's kind of he's kind of hurt himself in the process, but he's not he's not seriously hurt. So Lajos gives him some time to get back on his feet and he actually helps him up. And as he's got a, a grip of Rudiger with his, his right hand helping him up, um, you know, like uh, uh, pulling him up hand to hand. He's got the yellow card in his left hand. And in one single (laughs) motion, he pulls up Rudiger with the right hand and flashes the yellow card with the the left hand. And just the mechanics of it and the leverage, it's just an incredible referee uh, movement. And and there was was also a match last season between Hitafi and Mallorca where Lahoz books four players all in one go almost in a single motion and that was that, that was along similar lines he's all about refereeing efficiency Matthew Lahoz so I, 
even though Mike Dean has has retired, um, I think he's still in the VAR room. I think actually now, but obviously we're not gonna we're not gonna see him on the pitch. We still have thankfully Mathieu Lahoz. I, lo- I love that one as well, Graham. Uh, I, I like the the Pep domination one. I like the sort of dominating the player one a little bit there because I think uh, officials can try to like overly police and really stamp their authority down. And then there are officials who try to like be your buddy and, and talk a little bit. I don't really love that one either. I love the official who sort of is in on the joke, but also still upholding the rules of the game. Uh, Pierluigi Kalina is the one that will forever remain in my mind in that way. Uh, famed Italian referee. I believe he had alopecia. So was bald, had the striking blue eyes, but you could always see him. Like smirking when he would give out cards in that way. I was sort of like, you know what you did. This is your yellow. Like, come on. You're lucky it's only a yellow. Like, I think there's a, when you convey that sort of poise, but also calm, but then also maybe a little bit of like, but also don't step to me or I might destroy you. I think that's what a good official has to bring. Sometimes that's in the form of Howard Webb being able to bench press the moon. And sometimes it's Kalini just having that little, Kalina having that little smirk, that little like facial expression that I think uh, conveys a lot and then you can go the other way because my my maybe all-time favorite official is uh, i have to look up his name george jose emiliano dos santos aka margarita which is uh portuguese for daisy but he is the famed official i've talked about him before i will talk about him again uh brazilian referee known for his flamboyant style he is an iconic figure in Brazil. He's one of the first openly gay uh, referees who refereed at the top flight. Uh, but his there's a compilation you can find of him. The way he strolls the field, struts would be one, strides would be another, skips would be another. But he has one moment when he gets in a player's face who's protesting his decision and gives him a no, 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 no sort of gesture. But it's a full-on head shake back and forth. It's both hands waving in front of the player's face with fingers extended. It's just such a over-the-top performance that like he brought his own style to it and uh, that compilation will spark joy if you watch it i guarantee it will make you smile he is or was i should say amazing since he has since passed away i think any sort of elaborate gestures from a referee are Mm -hmm. always enjoyable mike dean was was always good with that with uh with like pointing to the penalty spot he would kind of Mm -hmm. um have his 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 feet planted shoulder width apart and then he would put everything into the point into the penalty spot so anything like that i'm in favor of (laughs) i i'm not in i'm not i'm never really a fan of referees who as you say taylor try and be friends with Mm -hmm. the players but i equally think if you as a referee if you just have that little bit of knowing of i know what's going on here and you're you're not getting away with it that's that's the best sort of referee and i used to play when I, when I played as a, as a teenager, there was a, a, an older referee, as most of the referees are when uh, in kind of youth football, certainly in Scotland. And his whole thing was, would be when you when you would argue with him, he would just go, <laughs> and eventually your argument would just die down until it was a whimper, and he would always get, he would always get the better of you by by just doing that. It was very simple but very effective. There was a there's a dude who referees like adult indoor soccer here in Richmond. Who uh, I had a teammate. He ran his mouth a little bit, and and a guy just absolutely slammed him against the wall. And then when the ref gave him a yellow card, the player turned and screamed like, "For what, man?" And the referee just responded like, "I can't book you for attempted murder, but like pretty much attempted murder was his response." And there's just something about like the I'm not even entertaining this as a discussion. I will answer your question because you've asked a question, but like you know what it was like there, there, that knowing sort of connection I think is so important to it. So uh, I'm a big fan of that one. Another great refereeing moment that always sticks in my mind, and I'm afraid I don't know who the referee was, and I, I tried to find it. I found the clip, but I couldn't find out who the referee was. But I remember this at the time. It must have bounced around social media. And it was a Mexico game, and the referee just can't get the Mexico wall to move back the extra yard or so. Andres Guardado is one of the players in the wall, and the referee's standing there, and he's clearly telling the players, move, up, move back a, bit, a little bit. They are just ignoring him. So he takes his vanishing free kick spray, and he just sprays it right over the top of their boots. The line just straight over the top of the boots, and that, that, that got them to move back. That'll do it. Disrespect the footwear, and that will get the response I think they're looking for. Oh, man, that's a great one. Uh, Joe, any more officials we should chat up before we keep it moving? 
Now, I'm, I'm against shouting out officials as a general rule. I've right. broken that rule enough, I think, as it is. I apologize for putting you in such an <laughs> uncomfortable position. Next question comes to us from uh, John Hofstetler. If the Premier League is indeed uh, premier, adjective, most important or best, what other adjectives would describe the other leagues? I would add, uh, I think... As of like 20 years ago or so, uh, I think it was the Premier League was the most passionate, La Liga the most technical, Serie A the most tactical. I do not know if that is still the case. Graham, are you familiar with that saying? I wasn't, but I think in terms of stereotypes and and, and cliches, that kind of works for for all of them, doesn't it? It kind of sums them up. I'm not sure that, as you say, that they apply anymore, but yeah, Yeah. that's pretty spot on. Yeah, so I, w- I think it's it has changed a little bit because I think all leagues would argue they are quite passionate. The Bundesliga was the one that now I would say tends to have the the loudest crowd noise or the one that most immediately comes to mind in that way. But I think everybody's got passion. So, Joe, were there any superlatives you would hand out to any leagues in particular? Okay, so maybe less so superlatives and more just continued to try to pick out adjectives. I, I did sure. three leagues here. So I'm starting in, in the United States because that is my brand. I think major is actually a pretty good word to describe Major League Soccer. So let me explain. I think they did a great job, Don and the whole crew. I know that wasn't his call. It doesn't matter. Major, defined in this way, is an Army officer of high rank, uh, in particular in the U.S. Army, Air Force, Marine Corps, an officer ranking above captain and below lieutenant colonel. And they're also below a few other ranks as well. Uh, Major League Soccer is not the best league in the world. It's also not the worst league in the world. Boom. Major League Soccer. Check. That was the first one I had. <laughs> the second one is for the NWSL. This one I actually did make up a new adjective because I, I thought it needed one. Um, my adjective is chaos. NWCSL is what I'm, I'm uh, hoping to rebrand this to. National Women's Chaotic Soccer League, Chaos Soccer League. We can work on that branding later. Uh, some teams in, in the NWSL this year have played 12 games. Others have played 16 games. And that makes sense, right? I mean, that, yep, totally with that. And then stats really aren't telling us a whole lot about the league right now, about which teams are good, and and the good teams with the good stats should be on the top, and the bad teams with the bad stats should be on the bottom. Oh, and also, the team with all of the U.S. Women's National Team players should probably be close to the top two, but the Washington Spirit are in 10th. So there are just a lot of things that don't make sense in the NWSL this year. The San Diego Wave were top for the vast majority of the season. Now they're down in third, but still, they weren't really supposed to have this good of a season. So I'm adding chaos or chaotic to the NWSL, I think that I think that just fits way more. And then uh, I, my last one is for Liga, which maybe should have been for the Bundesliga, but I kind of wanted to see what the French word for imbalanced was, and I, I did. Desequilibre, or something along those Ooh. lines, is French for imbalanced. So FB Ref just rolled out their uh, their salary data, which is not really very good data, and and probably not something that a lot of folks should refer to as. As really accurate. It's from a company called Capology, which is providing FBREF with data. And, and they kind of had to go through and like make a Twitter thread about how, no, this is, you can trust this. And I'm, I'm not really sure that that's the case. But one thing you can <laughs> gather from this data, and, and one thing that you didn't need the numbers to tell you, is how imbalanced Liga is in terms of the finances. And that's really what I'm getting at here rather than the results. We'll talk plenty more about Bayern Munich and the imbalance in the Bundesliga later on this week. But according to FBREF, again, big ol' asterisks here. I love FBREF, but this is maybe not not the one you want to take too much out of. But uh, apparently, Liga and, and PSG in particular spends eight times as much on wages as the next most expensive or, or spendiest team in France, that's Marseille, and 160 times more than the least spendy team in Liga. 160 times more. Now, again, there, there's some question marks there, but you go and look at their wages, uh, annual, their weekly wages, and the imbalance is shocking from 1 to 2 and from 1 to 20. So I, I'm I'm suggesting fellas that we rebrand Liga to imbalanced uh or I don't I don't know what the specific terminology should be but I think there's something there so I've got Major League Soccer the NWSL and Liga we're all working on rebranding the latter two and and MLS is just going to stay MLS forever I like the French one because it means I don't have to mispronounce a French numeral every single time we say that league. You can mispronounce another French word instead along with the rest of us. Yeah, which feels equally on brand. So yeah, yeah, I think it works either way. Uh, Joe, I like like, there's some solid ones there, especially I think major makes a lot of sense. I've never really thought about why they went with major other than Major League Baseball, but I don't know why Major League Baseball went with major. So now I have more questions uh, (laughs) than I do answers while I ponder that. Graham, what about you for some uh, some league adjectives? 
So MLS for for me is just quite simply the biggest league because it is quite literally the the biggest league <laughs> in the world, or maybe the convoluted league, which would be quite apt for a league with a rule yeah. book. Nobody seems question. to understand. <laughs> Not even the people who run the league seem to understand that they own the, the MLS's own rule book. Um, I've kind of stretched the boundaries of the assignment with my other suggestions because I was struggling with single word adjectives. So adjectives. So I've kind of got um, descriptive phrases <laughs> as, as some of the some of the the names of the league so the bundesliga similar to joe the bundesliga um is there's just one problem division uh, that problem <laughs> being Bayern munich there's so much to like about the bundesliga but the fact only one team ever wins it is indeed a problem and we will be talking about that problem in this week's big thing podcast um the scottish premiership is the do you really need your shins league uh it can get a bit rough here and i, th- I think that's part of the attraction will you see a nice goal or will you see a fight hopefully if you're lucky you'll, you'll see both in, in a single Scottish Premiership game and finally La Liga is the what sex are the football or the people league I mean have you seen Sergio Roberto or Pau Torres or Mark Bartra, Bartra it's not it's really not fair not only does Spain play in my opinion the most attractive soccer they have the most attractive people playing it as well <laughs> um I like the way you all have gone with these we've all taken it in slightly different directions um I did have Major League Soccer as being the league of acronyms, because it does seem like when you're going with the convoluted approach, you've got TAM, you've got GAM. There are others in there as well that makes you have to kind of learn that terminology. The Bundesliga, I went not quite with a like superlative or adjective, but more so with a, I feel like an appropriate descriptor. I always get, I always wonder how bands work when you have the, the front man and then the the band that has their own name. So like Shane Smith and the Saints, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats, like do you want to like? Do you want to be in that band when you've got the other guy out front? And I feel like that's a good way of saying that the Bundesliga should be re- rebranded as Bayern and the Best ofs. because <laughs> I feel like or Bayern and the Best of the Rests, which, whichever you prefer. But that is sort of a good way to to show what the Bundesliga has become. But I think the Bundesliga now, I would say, is the most tactical, and I would say Serie A. The the best way to put it for me would be the most competitive league at this point is kind of how I think of it because that's the one where. The Premier League, it might be Chelsea, but it's probably going to be Liverpool or Man City. But you have a clear idea who those main teams are going to be. And I guess you still do in Serie A because you're always going to have more money leading to a stronger competition. But I think it could be either of the Milan clubs. It could be Juve, potentially Napoli. You never know what will happen with Roma. Maybe Lazio sneaks into that conversation again. There's just It seems to be more competitiveness there and in mid-table. So I think those are... Uh, some that I would throw out. I still have a hard time sort of classifying Spain, I think, because we tend to focus or I tend to focus on the bigger clubs. So that's one where I maybe have less expertise. Uh, anyone with any thoughts on Spain aside from that? They're all very, very attractive, Graham. I mean, Graham's right. I don't have much else. Graham, Graham's just right. He's, Graham's right about everything. That's generally my approach. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even mention Mark Bar- Bartra. No, you did. Has to you be did. the most. Oh, did I? Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I've just outed myself as having a thing for Mark Bartra. <laughs> hey. You, you, you got to ask yourself sometimes, Graham. That, that's, that's, uh, so Bartra and the boys is what La Liga will be called for Graham. Yes. Uh, I think he just moved to Turkey, so maybe that doesn't move, work so well now. Ex-Bartra <laughs> and the boys. We'll just keep it going. Um, all right. I think we have mostly answered that question. We're going to take a break. We will be back with more listener questions in just a moment. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Welcome back. Next question comes to us from Richard Rolson. The gentlemen of Allocation Disorder talk a lot about how Major League Soccer needs to make changes to their roster rules to help improve the product on the field. Since it does not seem like MLS is willing to ditch the DP rule, uh, designated player rule, there's an acronym, I was wondering what the effect would be if MLS changed the amount of money a player needed to be considered a DP. For example, DPs <laughs> earning uh, $1,612,500 are considered max DPs and cannot be converted to a non-DP status. I feel like people are now having an aneurysm <laughs> and getting a headache. What would be the effect if the max DP level was raised to 3.225 million, would it uh, help MLS put this, put stronger rosters together? Joe Lowry, I'm going to take some time to reflect on that question and get my head right. Uh, I leave it to you to answer. I desperately hoped you would throw to Graham, both because I think it, it'd be funny and because I don't want to answer this question. No, I mean, I, I think... I think there is something to this, right? So I'm going to try to to dial all of that back like a half notch, and hopefully this will be understandable to people. Because doing research for these questions, and I can understand why Paul and Sam talk about the roster rules so much, because the second you start researching the roster rules in Major League Soccer, you wish that you had done anything else with your life and Accurate. think about how much better things would be if they didn't exist. So, Or at least if a lot of them didn't exist. So with all of that said, Yes, Richard, I think raising the the effect, raising the max DP level, so where, where you can no longer buy a DP down and use that DP spot on another player, doubling the money, essentially from 1.6-ish to 3.2-ish million dollars, I think would be beneficial. But in my mind, and you guys can correct me if, if my logic is wrong here, that's only like half the battle here. So I don't think, emphasis on think, this changes much unless you increase the supply of allocation money in MLS. And that's how designated players can become non-designated players. So let me explain. So every team basically gets three senior DPs. They get three designated players, and you can spend as much as you want on their acquisition costs and their salary, and they only count for a limited number on your salary cap. Major League Soccer has a salary cap. It's X amount of money, and, and DPs count for a very small, a lowercase x on your salary cap. That's why it's useful, because you don't have to pay, you don't have to record that money against your salary cap. So DPs get bought down from the $1.6 million. They get bought down to like $600,000 if they're making less than that initial money. No, sorry. Darn it. That is all wrong. DPs count for that money for $600,000. Why is this league like this? <laughs> Graham, you're asking the real questions. So when you're able to buy a DP down, they have to be making less than $1.6 million. And you can go and find a bunch of the MLSPA salary data. It's all over the internet. So raising that amount of money is great because it suddenly allows you to buy down players that you couldn't buy down before and use that DP spot for something else. So you could buy down Raul Ruiz Diaz. Or you could buy down Gustavo Bo or Sebastian Griussi, who very well might win the MLS MVP award this year. But the challenge is, unless you have more allocation money to do that, to buy down more expensive players, you... you to my mind, you will not be able to afford to actually execute that transaction. So, Richard, I think I think you're on to something, but I also think it needs to coincide with either a change in the mechanism of how players are bought down or more allocation money being pumped into the system. And I've talked for far too long about all of this, and Graham, <laughs> you can talk now. So, so Joe, right, this, this stuff just makes me feel so, so stupid, and I'm not fully sure that I understand I'm sure Richard's question is, 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 is a fair one and a good one, but I'm not sh uh, fully sure I understand what, what it means in the bigger picture. So in terms of the the salary um, cap and the amount that each team is allowed to spend on their roster, does this increase the size of the pie or does it just increase the size of the slices of the whole right, pie? Right. Because my problem with MLS is at this moment in time, and I understand why MLS has been cautious over the last couple of decades. I think that's been pretty sensible. But at this point, it feels like the time is right to liberate some of the, or all of the clubs to spend more. And some of those clubs are really pushing the boundaries in terms of getting players in on, on TAM deals. And the, and also the bail transfer was slightly creative and Chiellini and so on. Let's liberate the, those clubs so it, feels, so it doesn't feel like the biggest barrier they face at the moment is the league's own rules. But if, the, if this change that Richard is proposing doesn't increase the overall size of the pie, then I'm, I'm not entirely sure it's what I personally want to see from MLS, which is basically just allowing the clubs to spend more on their whole rosters rather than just the individual players. I think one thing that helps for me what I'm trying to understand MLS is to remember that 
it, it it reminds me a bit of like the stories you hear about like the founding fathers when they're first trying to write the constitution and the sort of screaming back and forth and the like okay well how about this compromise okay how about we fine tune that compromise and we make it this okay that doesn't work for Connecticut so we've got to incorporate Connecticut being annoyed about this one thing and eventually you have this document uh that requires revision consistently but works in that present moment and that feels a lot of what MLS is basically it's trying to accommodate like the the needs of teams that spend the way the LA clubs do or the way Atlanta does with teams that don't want to spend that much money and with owners who came in at an earlier point where there wasn't as much money required or don't have the means or don't have the inclination to spend. And I don't think that's always the best thing. But you can sort of, when you start to see these very strange mechanisms and why they have to work in such specificity, I see that as... Oh, smaller clubs or or owners with less money didn't want it to be the case that you can just buy off DPs and then bring in more. They want it to matter because if you spend that money and then it doesn't work, you're sort of stuck with that contract. But teams that can buy their way out, spend their way out, aren't having to handle that. But I think there's also teams that can make more money or can spend more money because they make more money because they're in more desirable locations around the country. So I think there's always this weird balance to MLS that I think makes it strangely captivating because you're you're balancing a league in two countries on two coasts with a lot of distance between them and you've got to find these ways to make things work but i agree overall i think a relaxation of the rules such that they could be less impenetrable and less immediately confusing i think would probably help people feel like the league was just more consistent or more cohesive uh and less very like uh meant for one present moment yeah, and, and Richard, the heart of your question is about taking some of the training wheels off, right? And I wrote about this recently. I think it is time, and Graham, you, you kind of just said this, it is time to take off the training wheels, but that doesn't mean that things are just going off the rails immediately, right? If you're Major League Soccer, you still have your actual wheels, and you still have your legs for balance, and your, I mean, you still have ways to balance. MLS has reached the point where you can justify taking some of the, the restrictions off. I, I would say not all of them. I think there is value in having some rules and restrictions surrounding how you can spend money. I mean, every league in the world has those things, but you look at a lot of leagues in Europe, say Liga or say the Bundesliga, where there is basically no conversation surrounding who's going to win the title other than jokes about like, oh, how soon is PSG going to win the title this year? How soon is Bayern Munich going to win the title this year? I am of the persuasion that that is not good for a soccer league. It is not great for the conversations around those leagues. MLS has taken it way too far to the other extreme, but them slowly and painfully slowly taking a, a quarter of the, this would, analogy is terrible, but taking a quarter of the right training wheel off and then taking a quarter of the left training wheel off. We're, we're inching closer and closer to that point. I think that progress needs to come faster, but I, I don't think it's, I, I do not think the way that MLS has structured themselves in the long term is a, is a bad idea as long as they are working towards pulling off some of those restrictions and, and to circle all the way back to Richard's question, I, I think this is a really intriguing idea about being able to buy down more players and just making the DP threshold higher. I mean, I, I went through the numbers, and according to the latest MLSPA salary release, and, and there have been some players added right in the secondary transfer window, basically MLS's summer transfer window since then. But, but roughly, only about 40 players in MLS are making more than $1.6 million a year, and only about 15 are making more than $3.2 million a year. So that's a massive increase if you up the amount of money that you can still buy down a DP, if you up their salary level and say, yeah, you can still buy down a player who makes $3 million a year. That That's a, a meaningful change. You can buy down MVP-level players and add in more MVP-level players or even better. You can go out and, and swing for the fences. But again, it has to be coupled with, at least I think it has to be coupled with some other change. So I don't know. Hopefully, Richard, we see something like this happen down the road. Hopefully, we see MLS continue to chink away at those training wheels. I think we will. Uh, Final point from me, because it's worth remembering when the league is founded, that first season is 1996, uh, the, I think, when the World Cup in 94 was awarded to the U.S. in 1988, the provision in there was that they had to start a domestic league, and when that bid was awarded in 88, that's only four years after the NASL had very publicly collapsed, and so... 84, the league collapses. 88, the U.S. gets the the World Cup bid. 93 is when MLS is announced as a league. 96 is when it begins. That's still not a ton of time between a league 
imploding and a new league starting. And so much of the discourse was then and remained for a good long while. We have to keep this stable. We can't have it collapse the way NASL did, the way other women's leagues have. There has to be money. It has to be slow growth. It has to be well monitored. We can't have a Magic Jack situation. And I think that was the guiding emphasis for so long that I, it's 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 an interesting reality to live in now where we're so far removed from the NASL collapse that it really only exists for a lot of people in documentaries about the league and in articles written about the league, less so in the memory of people. And so I think MLS still may be behind in what it's able to spend and still needs some restrictions, some limits, some sort of guiding provisions. But I do think has come a long way, will continue to go a long way, and the concerns about making sure everything spreads the right way uh, are maybe less valid than they've been previously. So uh, I, I appreciate the work you put into this one, Joe. I appreciate the question, and I appreciate MLS for the growth it has put into American soccer. I appreciate them certainly more than I appreciate Manchester United right now. Many questions <laughs> about Manchester United, most of them relating to Man United's incompetence. We've talked about it a lot. We'll go with this one from Greg Lamb. Can you explain to a casual fan how the following facts can all be true at the same time? Graham, you ready for the facts? I am. Okay, number one, Harry Maguire is a YouTube comedy meme for horrible defending on a deeply disappointing Manchester United team. Number two, Maguire seems to be an undisputed first-choice starter for the English national team. And number three, the English team are among the favorites to win the upcoming World Cup. So, Greg ponders, it seems to me that one of those three assertions should prove to be false if the others are true. (laughs) But as far as I can tell, all of those are facts. Can you explain? (laughs) Okay, so I think we have spoken about this before, but Maguire, Harry Maguire is a decent enough defender when he is playing in a team that is built to his, his, his strengths. Essentially, when he's not playing the majority of the match on the halfway line, as he does for Manchester United in a lot of matches. So for England, Maguire tends to hold a much deeper line, which suits his game fine because his weaknesses are a lack of pace and uh, recovery ability. So if you're an opposition player, you have a better chance of getting Maguire turned and running towards his own goal if you're playing Manchester United than you do uh, against England. And the other thing about England is that Southgate, certainly at the Euros last year, he has used a midfield two of Declan Rice and uh, Calvin Phillips. And that offers quite a bit of protection. So another thing you want to do against Maguire if you're an opposition attacker is you want to get running at him. You want to get past him because he doesn't do so well in those sort of situations. And Manchester City's midfield is such an abyss at the moment that this is very possible and easy to do. Against England, though, you have two players in there who stand a good chance of, if they don't stop you, they've got a good chance of disrupting you before you even get to to Maguire. And the other slightly intangible thing but I think is, is is fair to mention at this point is that United is just such a toxic environment right now for those players including Maguire that a lot of those players have some sort of soccer PTSD that I don't think is there when Maguire is playing for England which seems like a much healthier environment for, for players to be in at the moment which is a complete flipping of the script of yeah. 10 years ago where England was the unhealthy environment for players to be in and it was the club environment that was better but for Manchester United right now I think um, both in terms of the tactics the way Southgate line, uh, sets up his team the, the the players that are in that England midfield and then also just the general environment of the England camp right now that is a much better place for Harry Maguire than Old Trafford. Graham uh one follow-up for me. When you talk about Maguire's recovery ability, what does that mean to you? Or what is a thing that if like someone's watching Harry Maguire, you would point to as being like, see, ah, that's recovery ability lacking? Poor decision-making. Okay. So part of recovery ability is his, his pace, but I, I, I highlighted the pace individually. But when he gets into those positions where he is chasing back on into his own box, he's trying to stop a, an opposition defender, he will often make a poor decision, whether that is making a, a tackle when he needed to, to to stand up. The other thing he does is he's very, very passive. So the, the, the opposite scenario of that is where he does need to close down a player inside the box, but he will decide to stand off them and they just get the shot away very easily. So I think when once he gets into those scenarios where he is running back into his box. It's almost like he he lacks the the composure, a panic sets in. I think we saw in the Brighton game that 
Maguire and I forget who he was starting alongside in that game. Was it maybe... Oh, it would have been Lissandro Martinez mm-hmm. in that game. They were they were overlapping, which is one of the big rules of defending if you're a centre-back, unless you're in a Chris Wilder team, which he seemed to make a little <laughs> bit of a feature of that for Sheffield United. But generally speaking, you don't want to be overlapping with your centre-back and it just points to a panic in, in his play when he's, when he's recovering. It's not a strength of his. Harry Maguire has plenty of strengths as a central defender. He gets to showcase them for England. He does not for Manchester United. Joe, agree, disagree? Anything to add on that one? Graham has taken us through a couple different points there. Literally everything that Graham said, I yeah. I a thousand percent agree with. The point I always come back to is the tactical approach. Well, this is a bad way to say for Manchester United right now because they don't have a super well-defined tactical approach because things are so chaotic. But the way that Manchester United play and the way that England play are very different. England is super reserved. If they were in the Premier League, they would probably average, I don't know, they'd be in the bottom half of the table in terms of possession right I mean that, that maybe is a slight exaggeration but they don't love the ball they're happy to be conservative and Harry Maguire thrives in those kinds of situations or if not thrives he's very capable in those situations when he has to defend in space when he's asked to recover it's, it's a little bit of a different story and then on top of that you just have the the absolute disaster that Manchester United has been on the field for the last you know several seasons now the last couple of years at the very least and that's not setting up anybody for success you have Jaden Sancho one of the brightest talents in the entire world also plays for England coming in last season to Manchester United, and he was an afterthought in that team after being just electric for Borussia Dortmund. So you can see the kind of hits that that players take at Manchester United right now. Eventually that will change. I don't think it's changed yet for Harry Maguire, but again, different club, different contexts, different playing styles, different environments around those teams. I think that explains a lot of this issue. All right, so we'll see what happens with Manchester United. I guess if they sign Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice and play a, a lower defensive line, then they'll be just as good as England. I don't know if that's good enough for them to be top four, but at the very least, there's some structure there. Uh, we'll see the rumors that Harry Maguire could be dropped this weekend uh, for the Liverpool game. I think he would probably be okay with that for what Liverpool <laughs> would offer in the attack. Uh, but we do have another sort of Manchester United-centric question a little bit. Uh, let's take one more break, and then we will answer that one. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. 
Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. Listener questions ongoing. The next one comes from Jake Schroeder. I did check to make sure this was sent before Christian Eriksen was finalized as the man, or after Christian Eriksen was finalized as a Manchester United player, and it was. But Jake's question is, if Christian Eriksen were somehow able to move back to Tottenham, would the move benefit him more or would it benefit Spurs more? Hmm. I don't really know one because I feel like this is kind of a quick one. But my assumption is that it benefits him more because Tottenham have an actual structure and a style and he's played for Antonio Conte before. So I feel like it helps him get back some confidence and really ends up giving Spurs a bench player for all the depth they have. So that was my sort of quick summary of this one. Joe, where are you on it? I, th- I think there's a reality in which both parties would benefit. I know that's not the question because Jake, Jake is asking who's going to benefit more. I- if we really have to go that hard and, and faster, I would say Erickson. I'm not totally sure how well he fits into Conte's system, but I think he can be a productive player. I mean, we've seen him th- absolutely thrive for Tottenham before. It's a comfortable environment. It's an, it's an environment that he's going to be familiar with, and they're, they're just much more stable than Manchester United is right now. And so Erickson's going to play for Manchester United, and I do think he would play some for Tottenham too, but I think his limited minutes for Tottenham might prove to be more productive than a slightly larger amount of time on the field for Manchester United. So maybe Erickson, I, I kind of think this would work for Tottenham too, and just the big loser yeah. in this situation ends up being Manchester United, if, if this move were to happen, and it, it won't, at least not anytime soon. Because I think Erickson can be productive for that. If Manchester United can stabilize, even, even a little bit, and they will, right? They will come back to earth to an extent. And I, and I don't mean come down. I mean, like, come up because they're deep underground right now. They'll they'll steady and they'll stabilize and they're going to be fine as in, like, Europa League kind of a team this year, if not a, a little bit higher. That's that's what we're going to see from Manchester United this year once they sort out their business. And Ericsson, I do think, actually could fit well in a functioning Eric Ten Hag team. Whether we'll see a functioning team in a functioning dressing room, I don't know. But yeah, I think Ericsson probably benefits the most and then Tottenham and then very much last Manchester United in this fictional scenario. The, the thing about Spurs is they've obviously made a lot of signings this summer, but but going into the transfer window, it seemed like a creative central midfielder was was going to be a priority for them. And they, they were linked very strongly with Christian Eriksen. I think they were one of the, the three teams along with Manchester United and Brentford that, that made a contract offer to him. Of course, Conte knows him from uh, working with Eriksen at, at, at Inter, so you would think that he had some sort of plan to to use him. So I do think Spurs would benefit from Ericsson going there in this hypothetical situation where he moves there in, in, in January. But I think Spurs will be just fine without Christian Eriksson. And I'm not convinced Christian Eriksson will be just fine at Manchester United right now, given the way things are uh, at Old Trafford at this moment in time. So yeah, I think Ericsson benefits more from this move. I feel appropriately uh, depressed about all things Manchester United. So let's move away from that. Let's talk about other clubs and other people's clubs. Uh, Joe, coming to you for the first part of this question, and then Graham, obviously, for the final part. Um, from Mason Vandersee, TSS's recent ads for Welcome to Wrexham have led me to wonder how fans of lower league English clubs, such as Ryan, Ryan is not here with us, of course, feel about having Welsh teams in the English pyramid. Does it make for more difficult away days? Is there any resentment towards the Welsh clubs for taking spots that could go to more English clubs? Graham, what would the general sentiment be in Scotland if a similar merger with English football were to be proposed or adopted. Uh, Joe, obviously you are not quite as well versed in like lower <laughs> league football as say Ryan Bailey or the experience of fandom there. Ryan, but that's from, because Wimbledon are in the lower leagues in England. Yeah, that's, yeah that's Wimbledon why, not good is I guess what we're trying to get at. Yeah, yeah? yeah? Mm-hmm. I, I uh, guess so. <laughs> uh, those are Joe, Graham's words. Graham said that. Uh, yep. Joe, but like from from what you've read, how how is it being a Welsh club in the English league? So there's a there's a lot of interesting nuggets here that I found along the way. So first of all, I didn't know how many Welsh teams there were playing in England. So there's there's more than just a couple here. There's more than Wrexham. Obviously, you have Swan. Well, I shouldn't say obviously. Maybe maybe folks don't know Swansea City along with Cardiff City. You got Newport County. You have Wrexham and then Merthyr Town. Not sure if that pronunciation is right. My Welsh pronunciation generally eludes me, but I feel like that's a pretty doable one. So you have a handful of teams that have been in the English Football League. I wanted to to wind this back one step because I didn't even know why these clubs were playing in England as opposed to Wales. And, and it's kind of an obvious answer, but I didn't know this. When they first started, 
the Welsh Football League didn't exist. So Cardiff joined the English Football League in 1920. Swansea did the same in 1921. You have teams going to play in England because the infrastructure is there. The history is there. It's been established. Whereas the Welsh Premier League is is much newer. And football there is is just not... It's not as big, obviously, as it is in England, because that's true of 99% of countries on earth. The Welsh Premier League formed in 1992, from what I learned. But Welsh clubs even then decided to stay in the English Football League, which I I do think makes sense. I, I think about this, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but I think it's a solid one. I think about this as Toronto FC or CF Montreal or the Vancouver Whitecaps staying in MLS, despite the fact that the Canadian Premier League exists now. It's a higher level with much more stability. It's, it's really still not in the same ballpark in terms of stability and quality and long-term vision. So I think it makes sense as to why some of these clubs are in the English Football League. As far as how lower league fans in England feel about this, I couldn't find anything that said, I, I, we need to get these Welsh teams out of our leagues. All right, and Taylor, maybe you found something about this. Graham, your perspective is certainly more valuable here. But I, I did research. I was reading through Reddit posts and all of those things, and I didn't find anyone saying... This this is bad for soccer in England, or this is bad even for soccer in Wales. I think there is probably some of that sentiment from Welsh fans to want to see their leagues grow. But but realistically, I think there's a lot of logic behind this arrangement. The, the travel is not excessive. It's going to be farther in some instances, but at least through my American color glasses where it takes you know five hours to fly across the country, and that still feels reasonable to me, it's a different ballgame. So I, I haven't found much that says... Yeah, England fans are, are, are fans of English teams are ready for the Welsh teams to go. I, I didn't read anything about that. Taylor, did you find anything else that's sort of contradictory to that research? Or Graham, what's your perspective? Either one of you guys? Yeah, no, I, I did not. I think the Major League Baseball one is a good analogy in the way that I think Welsh clubs are perceived, which is sort of like like Canadians playing baseball. It's like, yeah, of course you'd rather play in the, in the larger league where there's going to be more money. Uh, and I don't think anyone is ever thinking that a Canadian team is taking away like an opportunity from an American team, even if some of the Canadian teams have since moved to America. Uh, but I, I think there are issues with certain Welsh clubs, like Vincent Tan taking over and changing the entire structure. That's more of a club-specific one, but Wrexham, for example, I think had to get special dispensation for their transfer activity because they've spent a lot of money. They're the odds-on favorite to get promoted out of the National League, the fifth tier, and get into the Football League. But the National League has no... I think the the transfer deadline is March, so you can conduct transfers until March. And for a club like Wrexham, who have more money, who are spending that money, I, they were be- being penalized, as I understood it, with having to abide by the more conventional transfer windows. They've gotten dispensation to avoid that. But I think, as with anything, it's less about geography and more about money these days. I think, if anything, there's just maybe some disparaging jokes about Welsh or, or Wales in general, less so than actual like antipathy towards Welsh teams. But that is my very much outsider's opinion. Uh, Ryan, I'm sure, would add in some insults toward the Welsh. So, Graham, uh, a- any thoughts on this one before we get your thoughts on how it would be perceived in Scotland? Uh, yeah, I just don't sense that there's any animosity from from the English clubs in the EFL towards the, the Welsh clubs. As you say, maybe Ryan would, would provide a, a better insight on that. But it's just because this has been... a more insight is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. I think I think it's just because this is the way it's been for every single EFL fan. Because if you look at Cardiff City joining in 1920, Swansea City 1921, it's kind of just always been this way. Um, obviously, that's 100 years ago. So only really if there are any fans over the age of 100, they might remember what it used to be before Welsh clubs joined the EFL. So it doesn't feel like once you're part of the furniture, you're part of the furniture. And it doesn't really, I don't think there's any debate about those clubs leaving the EFL. All right. And what, so, and you don't think it would be too big of an issue in Scotland? So this is a whole discussion. We could do a whole podcast on this. Um, In terms of Scottish clubs joining the English league system, it's something that is mentioned every so often, particularly with regards to Celtic and Rangers who would almost certainly be more prosperous in England than, than they are in, in Scotland. Certainly from a financial point of view, they'd be among the biggest clubs in, in, in the Premier League if they if they went down there, in terms of club size anyway. And there would be a lot of Scottish football fans in favour of this. Roughly around 50% of football fans in Scotland are Celtic or Rangers fans, and the other 50% are not Celtic or Rangers fans, and they hate, hate Celtic and Rangers. So I think they'd be glad to see the back of them. And there's an argument that Celtic and Rangers leaving would stimulate more 
competition and ambition among the other Scottish clubs who all of a sudden could target a league title and they'd be winning trophies and so on. The flip side of that and the fear is that the Scottish Premiership becomes the League of Ireland or the Welsh League and and the quality actually rather than improving and stimulating growth actually it gets worse. But my, my view in terms of the sentiment on this in Scotland is that if it wasn't for governance, if it wasn't for the Scottish FA and some complaints from some of the English clubs as well, if this was down to clubs and fans alone, Celtic and Rangers would probably be playing in England by now. That's fascinating to me, Graham. That, so can you explain to me, maybe this is better for another podcast, but I'm struggling to see the logic of taking the two highest profile clubs out of a league. I, maybe this is the same Bayern Munich discussion that, that again, we're going to have later this week. But surely there's a way to try to incentivize some competitive balance without taking away your two biggest revenue drivers and your biggest moneymakers yeah. in that way. So as I say, this could be a whole podcast okay, in right, itself. Right. So I'll, tr- I'll, try and keep the, I'll try and keep this short. But basically one of the issues that Scottish football has is the voting structure of the Scottish Premier League. There are 12 teams in the Scottish Premier League and 11 need to vote in favour of something for something to happen. So getting Celtic and Rangers and the other teams on the same page about something is almost impossible. So you're right, you could bring in like financial fair play style regulations like they have in La Liga. You could bring in even some MLS-esque rules to the Scottish Premier and that would improve the competitiveness of teams like Hibs and Aberdeen and Hearts, who are big clubs in their in their own right, just nowhere near as big as Celtic and Rangers. However, Celtic and Rangers are never going to vote for that. You need eleven of the twelve, so you need Celtic and Rangers to both to to both be on the same page as the rest of the teams. So the voting structure is is a real problem for the Scottish Premiership, and there's just an element of exhaustion, I think, in Scottish football among non-old firm fans. Every, everything in Scotland, Scottish football is dominated by Celtic and Rangers. I don't think there's a country in world football, to be honest, that is dominated by two clubs like Scotland is by Celtic and Rangers. So just the, a, a bit more oxygen to these clubs like Aberdeen and those clubs, these teams that I mentioned, would be appealing to them. So I think, as I say, I think if it was down to clubs and fans, Celtic and Rangers would be in the English league system. Uh, Graham, we have another Scotland question to round things out. This one comes from Shreyas Romani. He actually asked it for you and Ryan, but since Ryan is not here, we will ask you. We'll ask Ryan later on. Graham, could you do a mini preview for your club this season? I'm one to scroll through scores and tables from random leagues and would like to hear what your expectations are for this season and what you feel would constitute a successful campaign for Sterling. So every season we start with this hope that we might get into the playoffs and win promotion up to League One. And then the, st- the season starts and very quickly the concern becomes that we, we might actually get relegated. Uh, so at this point, I would simply take staying in the SPFL pyramid. Albion at this moment for, in time this season, they're, they're quite a slow team. And talking about the, the actual profile of, of the team, there's not a great deal of pace, which means our matches aren't always the most entertaining. I sometimes shudder at what Joe would think of Sterling Albion games because there's not not a great deal of uh, tactical innovation. There's not a great deal of, of Graham, believe uh, technical it or not, ability. I'm, I'm not terribly surprised by that. So it's no. it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, the, the the fourth tier of Scottish football you might be surprised to learn is is not La Liga. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we even by those standards, we're quite a slow team and, and quite a physical team. But we do have one of the best goal scorers in the division. He's called Dale Carrick. He used to play for Hearts and Kilmarnock. And we're, we're actually pretty lucky to have him. I think he's got five or six goals already this season. So if he could get 20 out of... Uh, if he could get 20 goals this season, that would be a big deal. And that could change the targets for this season. But with Albion right now, um, there's all sorts of off-field things going on at, at the moment. So... The trust board want to appoint a new board and a new chairman, but there's actually no democratic mechanism for that to happen, despite the club being fan-owned. So there's a bit of a standoff right now. It's all very tense and the fans are a bit divided on it. But on the pitch, I think a successful, to summarise, a successful season would be finishing in the playoffs and a failure would be relegation. And that that would be the ultimate failure because at that point, Sterling Albion wouldn't even be an SPFL club anymore. We would drop into the non-leagues. So that would be a bit of a disaster and uh, a real defining moment in the club's history. So let's hope it doesn't come to that. Graham, I think fan-owned clubs tend to be perceived, at least from the outside, like this egalitarian model of oh, like happiness and togetherness, uh, whereas the corporate ownership structure feels impersonal. It feels like there's just one person. Who knows if that's actually the way to go? And it's kind of only now just occurring to me that, yeah, if you have a lot of different voices involved in a lot of the different decisions, it can lead to a little bit more, 
if not infighting, then more drama or like can be more difficult to get things done. Has that been your experience with some fan-owned clubs or some lower-level clubs that there is a bit more – it just is difficult to get things sort of decided and moved on? Yeah, certainly with Sterling Albion. So we were actually, I believe, the first fan-owned senior league team in the United Kingdom. Or actually, I think it maybe it was it was it maybe been Scotland, but we were certainly one of the the first in the United Kingdom. And at that point, it, there wasn't really a, a a textbook to follow on how you do it. So I think Sterling Albion have made a lot of mistakes. As I say, there's no democratic mechanism to change the board, even if the trust board, which is the representation of the fans. If that is their desire, there's no way to change that. So that that's a flaw in the system. And I think if you were having a fan uh, takeover, fan led takeover, now you would you would have that mechanism. And I look at clubs like Hearts. Hearts seems to have Hearts in Scotland seem to have done it much more effectively than Stirling Albion. But you still get the politics in fan owned teams. Hearts still have those politics within their their ownership structure. And um, so it's absolutely not the um, utopian solution. I think a lot of people think it is but looping all the way back around to our discussion about elon and billionaires i would still prefer that the fans owned the club over someone like that yeah i think that that's probably fair i do hope there's a reality in which the four of us can attend a sterling albion game at some point i think it would be very fun to have all of us in one spot in scotland uh seeing your beloved club graham because i also think you cheering for them cheering for scotland is probably a different graham ruffin than we are used to <laughs> maybe joe joe can uh joe can have a macaroni pie I, yes. we, we spoke about those last week in our in our in our slack chat i think joe is or was, was it on twitter yeah, joe, it was on actually, twitter i think you oh my gosh yeah, that I, would be amazing I think, I, I think joe wants to sample a macaroni pie which is exactly what it says on the tin it's macaroni <laughs> in a pie and they sell them at sterling albion games and i had one on saturday there when i went to the game so joe i will order you five and have them waiting for you when you turn up Grandma how man. is it that america gets mocked for the food that we create when you have things like <laughs> macaroni pie i guess it's all deserved it's all probably deserved. i'm eating yours taylor i'm eating yours that's fine that's I it will, i will happily uh bequeath you my serving of macaroni Let's pie. Go. i'm not sure i will i take that back it sounds delicious i lied um i think on that note of me contemplating uh, if I have any any good taste anymore, because macaroni pie now sounds delicious. Graham Ruffin, <laughs> thank you very much for taking the time to answer some listener questions with me today. Thank you, Taylor Rockwell. I will put a macaroni pie at the side, reserve one for you as well for turning up at Stone Albion and, game. And I assume, I assume it won't go bad in the months it will take me to get over there, which is a sign of why we should all be avoiding macaroni pie. Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> they, they, it will take months, maybe even years for a macaroni pie to expire. <laughs> uh, Joe Lowry, thank you for your time today and for, I'm assuming, getting back to searching the couch cushions for those billions and billions of pennies. I'm going to start a silent protest as soon as I'm done talking and told Taylor you agree to give me your macaroni pie. Silent protest starts now. Uh, silent protest can be over. You can have that one too. Listeners, thank you so much for <laughs> listening today. As always, once we go past the hour mark, things devolve pretty quickly. We appreciate you sticking with us. We appreciate li- you listening to the shows that have already come out this week. A few more still to come, but for now, we'll just talk to you soon. 